0: in the book of hebrews if you have your copy of god's word that you would open it to hebrews chapter nine hebrews chapter nine we're in the middle of a section of hebrews that is talking about the covenant that god has made to us and remember that the purpose of the book of hebrews is that we would not give up in our faith to encourage us in our walk with god in spite of suffering in spite of difficulties, in spite of whatever circumstances we may face, that we would continue to press on to the goal that is ahead of us. And, and chapter 9 continues that very important message. And it's and the tendency, I think, when we come into chapters like chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it be, the, the reading becomes pretty dense and the teaching becomes pretty thick. And it's kind of easy to just kind of go, okay, he's just telling us we have a covenant and, and, and let's just kind of move right along. And I really believe this is an extremely transforming, encouraging text. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through it paragraph by paragraph and get the, the main idea and some of the big pictures that the writer is giving us so that we can then have this picture and important teaching from the writer of Hebrews of why in this covenant we would never want to give up in our faith. So let's begin in chapter 9 and we'll look at the first five verses. They're Hebrews 9 verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For the tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So you'll notice what the writer of Hebrews does is he just starts giving an overview about what that first tabernacle looked like under the first covenant. And he describes that there were two rooms in there. And the the first room, it had this lampstand and it had a table and it had the bread of presents. And so he describes some of the articles that were found in it. And then he describes the second room that was beyond it. And he describes it being covered in gold, this gold altar of incense, The Ark of the Covenant also being covered in gold. And then above the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim. And that was overshadowing then the mercy seat. And there are two real important pictures in describing this. As you just kind of get a sense of this this picture of this tabernacle. It has two rooms. In that first room where all the priests could go. And in the second room only the high priest. And you're getting a, a picture of the beauty of this tabernacle. Tabernacle, And yet in the process of that, note that he also describes there was a curtain between the two rooms, between that first room and between the second room is this curtain that that would exist. And so just calling to their minds is just a reminder. And the big point of this paragraph is twofold. The tabernacle was glorious. You can just imagine this is. The, the, the place of God where God's presence was. as The directions were given for the creation of the tabernacle. God said, this is where I'm going to meet my people. The presence of God himself was there. Later, the scriptures would say that God was enthroned on earth in that very second room of, of that tabernacle. And it was the place for atonement, the place for forgiveness of sins. And so you have this imagery that look at all the glory, all the gold that was in there and all of the beauty and the presence of God was there. This is where God resided with his people, where there is mercy and where there is atonement. And just imagine all of the beauty, the glorious nature of this first covenant and this first tabernacle. But it was inaccessible. In describing all the beauty and the glory, there is an image that this is inaccessible. You didn't go into that second room. It was, there's a curtain there. And so for all the beauty and for all the splendor and for all the glory that exists with this tabernacle, average Israelite person never saw it. Never walked in it never beheld anything that was inside of either of those rooms, only the priests themselves in the first room, which is what he goes on to describe if you'll notice in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So after describing the beauty and describing the glory of this tabernacle and reminding us there was a curtain that existed between the two rooms, in verse 6 he describes what happened in the first room. Priests would go into that first room where the lampstand is and the table and the showbread, and they would perform their duties and make their offerings, and they would do those things regularly. And I want you just to get a sense of that the average priest, as they would do their work, is in that first room. And right beyond that curtain is the second room is the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant and all that was inside of it and all the gold that is in there. And as the priests are performing these sacrifices and doing their rituals and doing their obligations and performing these functions day after day after day, they never got any closer to God than in that first room. Every day, sacrifices. But there was never a day where after all the sacrifices were done and all the rituals were accomplished, they said, okay, now we can go into the second room. No, 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 no. With all that effort and all that work, they still stood outside the presence and remained in that first room. Notice in verse 7, the emphasis to the high priest. The high priest was allowed to go into the second room, but with great limitations. He did not just simply go in there and perform functions and do work every single day whenever he wanted. Not in the slightest. Huge limitations were placed upon him. He was only allowed to go into the second room where the presence of God is one time a year. And he could only go in there on that day of atonement with blood. And the blood there was for himself as well as for the people. And so think about this. As the high priest is allowed to go into that room and offer the sacrifice and bring in the blood and make atonement, what would happen the second year? And the third year? And the fourth year? And the fifth year? The same thing would keep happening year after year after year. Think about how the high priest would go into that second room and then did he come out and go, hey everybody, atonement is made. Let's all go into the second room and be with God. (laughs) No. No, no, no. The high priest uh, to our calendar 364 other days was not allowed to go in there again. And even with the sacrifices made on the day of atonement, not a single Israelite still came into the presence of God and all remained on the outside. And so, this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to give us a picture in regards to the first covenant. In fact, in verse 8, it says the Holy Spirit was indicating something by this. God was trying to teach some things that were very important. Number one, God was not accessible. God made that message clear from the very first time he met the people in Exodus. When God said, I'm coming down on Mount Sinai, he said, everybody better get away from the mountain. Nobody comes near to God and that has been a strong message that God has communicated throughout that first covenant. God is not accessible to us. You cannot come near to God. And not only that, you'll notice in verse 9 he made the point, the consciences of the worshipers could not be perfected. That was a point made in chapter 7. It was made also in chapter 8. It's highlighted here as well. The problem that we have as worshipers before God is not solved in that we still can't come near. The conscience is not purified we're not able to be in the presence of God and thus that he makes the point in verse 10 these sacrifices of food and drink and various washings and regulations they only are dealing with the externals they don't solve the heart problem and this is then the ultimate issue that he is wanting to, for us to see in these first 10 verses the sacrifices Do not transform the heart. And think about this. God created that whole tabernacle system. And that whole first covenant. With the very intention of showing. That there are limitations. To accessing God. And that there are limitations in the cleansing. That the people need. To be able to draw near to God. I think that's fascinating that God would just create a whole system. And he says there in verse 8, and the whole point was to teach this. You can't come near God and we have a cleansing of heart problem. Because you don't see after the day of atonement, everybody just traipsing into the tabernacle and going, hey, everybody, we're fine. Look at us. We're now in the presence of God. No, uh, sacrifices were still made the next day, day after day after day. And every year day of atonement still had to be made year after year after year after year. Friends, for not a few years, not for decades, but for hundreds of years through high priest after high priest after high priest. These sacrifices are being made year after year after year. That brings us to verse 11 with this big statement here, this big contrast in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through whom the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. Notice he says, we have worked very hard at depicting Jesus as a superior high priest in this book with who comes with a superior covenant and enters into a superior sanctuary with a superior sacrifice. And here now, that is being all being brought together in verse 11, where it says, He has now come, And better things are here. And He enters not the model. Remember last week we talked about the model. The first covenant with its first tabernacle is just a model. He doesn't enter the earthly model. But He enters into heaven itself. Into the greater sanctuary. and just the visualization. He enters not with the blood of animals. He doesn't come in and go, okay, here's the offering of all these animals that were slain. He comes in with his own blood. He's the superior sacrifice. He is what is necessary to make it possible for us to have the access to God and have the cleansing of conscience. Animals are not sufficient. So he comes in It says there with his own blood and notice how it's described there so beautifully in verse 12, thus securing an eternal redemption. I love the idea of securing something. He has accomplished something for us, something that we could not accomplish. He has accomplished for us eternal redemption, a redemption, big idea. We have been purchased so that we could be set free from our sins. Redemption is about setting slaves free. We have been set free from slavery to sin by His blood that He then puts before the very throne of God and thus it purchases that on our behalf. And that's the idea that He gives us in verses 13 and 14. If the blood of animals was sufficient and acceptable... For the cleansing of the body, think about all the rituals, think about all the sacrifices, all the activity that was going on in that first covenant and in that first tabernacle. And if God accepted that, how much more cleansing comes from the blood of His Son? If animals can accomplish external cleansing, so that they could remain as the people of God, then what is being accomplished when Jesus Himself brings His own blood into the very presence of God, not in the model, but in the reality? This is the whole idea of securing our redemption. How much more then are we able, you have to love the phrase in verse 14, to have our conscience purified from dead works. To serve the living God. One of the big messages that that first covenant was attempting to show. Is that only God. Is able to purify and clean stained consciences. There is something about guilt and the weightiness of it that we can carry with us. And it's something that the writer of Hebrews is beginning to to talk about. If we have time, we don't. Chapter 10, he's going to talk about the cleansing of the worshippers' consciences. He's already talked about that a little bit here. And he's going to bring it up again. I want to illustrate the idea of what's happening that God is saying he is doing in terms of this cleansing of our consciences so that we can serve a living God. Let's say you are driving down the turnpike or you're driving down I-95 and we will put your best intentions at heart. You're not really paying close attention to to your speed. (laughs) And you're not aware that you are going faster than the speed limit. And you come over one of those bridges. And there on the other side is a trooper. And there your heart sinks as you look at the speedometer. And it's well over five over and you go, oh boy. And what do you immediately do Foot comes off the gas, brake lights everywhere, everybody starts slowing down. And what are you attempting to do now for the next mile or two? I am a model driver. I am going 70 right on the needle. And you will stay that way. Is your conscience feeling good at that moment as you are needling 70 miles an hour for the next mile or two? No, because what are you doing the whole time? Looking in the rearview mirror every three seconds. You have a guilty conscience. And there's nothing you can do to solve it. I don't care how long you stay going 70, you can't solve it. You're still wondering, is he coming? Is he coming? Is he going to get me? Is he coming? What's the only thing that solves that guilty conscience, that stained conscience? The mercy of the trooper to not come out and get you. Right? After about so many miles, you go, I guess he's not going to thank you. (laughs) There's nothing you can do to solve it. That was the whole point of that first covenant. Was to show you have the weight of sin. And there is nothing you can do to solve it. In fact, you can have God say, like the day of atonement, okay. But then tomorrow, another sacrifice had to be made. And then another sacrifice had to be made. And next year, the high priest still had to go into the Holy of Holies. Year after year, week after week, day after day, there is this emphasis being made by God that you have a guilty stained conscience from your sins and there is nothing you can do to solve it. God's going to have to cleanse the conscience so that you can serve the living God because you've got all the baggage of sin and you can be as good as you want to be all the days of your life. That doesn't change anything about how you feel about all of your past sins doesn't matter how good you are the rest of the way down the highway. You're caught red-handed. And there's nothing you can do. This is what the writer of Hebrews is drawing out about what we have here in Christ with this superior sacrifice and the superior nature of this covenant. We need God to help us. We need God to do something. We need God to cleanse the guilt, to cleanse the sins, to cleanse the conscience because it doesn't matter how many good things we could possibly do going forward. You could come to church every single Sunday, do everything just right, never lie, never do anything, and it doesn't even matter because of all the things you've done in the past doesn't matter this is the flaw of the good moral person I'm a good person before God that is the flaw it doesn't matter it doesn't solve it so I like to use the illustration you accidentally run a red light if you stop at it twice next time does that make it okay (laughs) no you could be the perfect driver the rest of your days you still ran that light It doesn't change it. It doesn't matter. So this is then what we need. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called There is no forgiveness of sins. Notice where the writer of Hebrews wants to bring us at this point. We have received the promised inheritance. I love that in verse 15, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How do we receive that promised eternal inheritance according to verse 15? Well, because we went to church every day and we were really good people and we weren't as bad as our neighbors and we didn't lie, cheat, steal, and all that kind of stuff. No. Look at verse 15. The reason why the call are able to have the promised eternal inheritance is because a death occurred. A death was necessary. All your good deeds do not matter. You can stop at all your red lights and needle the speed limit all the way, but you broke it and it doesn't matter. So something has to happen. And it's not all of our good works that are going to accomplish it. There is the necessity of blood. And that is what he describes in this paragraph is the picture of how covenants required blood. Even the first covenant, blood was required. The imagery there that comes from Exodus is amazing. I want another hour to talk about that. Please go look back at Exodus 24. I did a sermon all on Exodus 24 because this blood of the covenant image is phenomenal and staggering. But the imagery was this. Remember that Moses takes the animals, fills the basin full of blood after slaughtering them, throws it on the altar, and then throws it on the people. And the people are saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that lasts long in the book of Exodus, right? Just give it seven chapters. It's, that's, it's over. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And he throws the blood on them and says, this is the blood of the covenant. And the point of that was to purify the people by blood so that they could be in this covenant relationship with God. For just a matter of probably 40 days... The people are in covenant relationship with God as the blood is thrown upon them to signify purification so that God can be their their God and the people can belong to Him. And so he reminds them of that. Blood was required for that. Blood is necessary to purify. This is a huge point in Scripture. If we are going to purify, we need blood. That's why all the sacrifices were there in the first covenant. If we're going to have purification, there must be blood. If we're going to have purification, there must be blood. In fact, he draws the point very strongly without the shedding of blood. There cannot be forgiveness. There is no way to be forgiven any other way. This is what God is showing from the very start. All throughout history trying to help us understand and see that we need blood. The Death must occur if we are going to be purified and if we are going to be forgiven. We need someone to die for us to be forgiven. We need someone to die for us to be, to us to be purified. We need someone to die in context here to have a cleansing covenant. We need a new covenant. We need a covenant that can forgive us and cleanse us and bring us close to God. We need something that will heal us and make it possible to be in relationship with Him because we've broken the law and a death must occur. And it is amazing that the picture that has been given for us is that this is exactly what Jesus came to do? Notice verse 23. Here's the big conclusion thus, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but it, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Remember, we've seen this idea of the model. These things are a model, and we need to have these things happen with the heavenly things, with better sacrifices, the better sanctuary. Verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now he draws his big thunderous conclusion, amazing imagery of what Christ has accomplished. This is why we need Jesus. We need somebody to be able to enact a cleansing covenant so that our consciences can be purified, so that we can be in relationship with God and stand in the presence of God. Animals deal with the externals. We need a better sacrifice. We need something more. And thus he makes that point in verse 23 that it is necessary then for there to be this better sacrifice, but that he did not then enter into the Physical verse 24, but He appeared in the presence of God. Please highlight it, color it, underline it, mark it there at the end of verse 24. He appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. Unbelievable. So easy to read over that. We're guilty. We need cleansing. We've been shown we cannot come into the presence of God. We are unholy. We have no access to God because of our sins. What does God do? His son comes, offers himself with his blood so that he can go into the presence of God to make atonement for us. That's the sacrifice we need. And that is the covenant that was established for us that we need. Jesus dies, raises from the dead, and enters into heaven to stand before God on our behalf. The sacrifice is so perfect, he only needed to do it once. That's verses 25 and 26. The sacrifice is so beautiful, so perfect, exactly what was necessary that this isn't done year after year after year. And the point of that is in chapter 10, which we will look at in a few weeks. But one offering for all time to deal with sacrifices to deal with all of the issues, to deal with everything that didn't work in the past. All those offerings and sacrifices and rituals, that doesn't work. We need a better sacrifice. We need a better covenant. And so Jesus comes in to the better sanctuary with a better sacrifice, with better blood to accomplish with a better covenant the ability to take sins away. And what I want us to hear the writer of Hebrews driving at here is that sin is not the final word. It's not supposed to be the final word. That is the story of redemption in Scripture. You could have Genesis 2. Let's just do it this way Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2, here's Adam and Eve. Genesis 3. They sin, Genesis 4, everybody goes to eternal punishment. The end. That'd be fair. (laughs) Or, okay, God goes, I'll make a new nation through Abraham and now they'll follow me, right? No, they won't. None of them ever will. And they'll all rebel and fall away from God too. What does God do? Rather than allowing sin to be the final say about our separation from God, he offers his son so that sin is not the final say. Sin no longer has rule and dominion over us. We are able to come into the presence of God because of the sacrifice that has been made for us. We are able to enjoy what none can have, which is the access before God and the forgiveness before God. And friends, that's what I want us to see with verses 27 and 28 is the big finale to this paragraph. Just as it is appointed... For man, for people to die once and after that comes judgment. Let me just ask you, how certain is it that people die and must stand before judgment? Is there any moving of that needle? Or maybe ask it another way, are any of us getting out of here alive? (laughs) No, we're not getting out of here alive. We're all going to die. That's the reality. So notice the certainty that verse 24 is establishing just as it is with absolute certainty that it is appointed for every single one of us to die and stand before God in judgment, notice the point that he makes in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Did you hear that? with the same certainty that you know you are going to die, you should hold to the same certainty that Jesus is appearing a second time. He just makes a little equation right there. You know you're going to die. And you know Jesus is coming back. It is a guarantee That he is going to return. But here's the really amazing picture. I stopped right in the middle of that sentence. Why is he coming back? Why is he coming back a second time? Does he need to do some more sacrifices, some more offerings? Was the first work insufficient that he needs to, you know, tidy up some loose ends and get this all figured out? Now look at verse 28. Why is he coming a second time? He is coming for those. Who eagerly are waiting for them. He is coming to save them. With the certainty that you know we are going to die. We are not getting out of here alive. It is the same certainty that Jesus has dealt with your sins. And He is coming back for you. Friends, that's why we hold on to these passages like in John 14, right? We love these kinds of passages where we read in John 14, Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. Big point. Right? And the lesson's yours. The writer of Hebrews has established for us what Jesus has done is He has brought about a covenant that cleanses so that we are able to now be in the presence of God. That we are able to have sins dealt with because only shedding of blood is there the forgiveness of sins. And that our consciences can even be purified. That the sacrifice of Jesus is so perfect and so extensive... That all of those past sins and those past guilts, they can be absolutely completely forgiven. No more looking in the rearview mirror. They're all dealt with and gone. It's over. The blood of Christ deals with all of that. That's why there's not more sacrifices in the future. Once for all sacrifice means sin dealt with. Once for all. And then on top of that, he then ends by saying, and you understand that not only did he come and die for sins, set you free from sins, secure an eternal redemption for you so that your sins could be forgiven. You can be in a covenant that gives you access to God that the first covenant didn't have. Israel stands outside the whole time. He's promised he's coming back to save Those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What's been the point of Hebrews? How could you give up? Don't give up now. Don't give up on your faith now. Look at all that God has accomplished through the Son. Don't quit now. You're right there, you're about to enter into glory. And the sins have already been dealt with. The guilt has been dealt with. The consciences have been cleaned. And you are in a covenant that brings you access to God. And Jesus made a promise as certain as it is you're going to die, it's as certain as He's coming back for you. So don't quit. And don't live your life tomorrow as if He's not coming. Don't live this week as if He's not coming. Don't live your life like He's not coming. How many different ways can He prove it to us? Not only through His own death. Why did He die if He's not coming back for us? Why did He even do it? Of course He's coming back. It's the whole reason that He died. And according to the writer of Hebrews, it's the whole reason for that first covenant. And the whole reason for that tabernacle system is to see that we need a better sacrifice with a better covenant in a better sanctuary from a better Savior with better blood. And he did it. He accomplished it. And to these Christians who are suffering here in that first century, they got that letter Here's the writer of Hebrews saying hang on and do not give up and do not crumple under the weight of your suffering or your trials or your difficulties or your sins or your pains. Do not give up. Do not give up. Do not quit. Do not throw away your faith. Do not live your life as if he's not coming. Press on, press on, press on. Can I go back to chapter 2? Don't neglect your salvation. Can I go to chapter 4? Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. He's giving them the warning again and again and again. Don't stop pressing because He's coming for you, each and every one of you. He's coming back to save those who eagerly wait for Him so my question to us this morning then is are you eagerly waiting for him because he's coming for you if you are that's why he came that's why he died that's why he went into the presence of God and that's why he made atonement for your sins is because he wants to come and bring you to himself will you turn away from sin stop making decisions for self stop living life in this world Stop living as if this is all there is to this life. As certain as you know you're going to die, as certain you know Christ is coming for you. Live in the light of eternity that Jesus is coming for you. Can we help you do that? You can turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God who died for your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to begin the relationship with Jesus. We beg you to do that. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?